Yo. Our sponsors today have got an awesome offer on for service personnel and veterans. Westway Nissan are the largest Nissan dealership in the UK and offer up to 20% off the vehicles for members or former members of HM Forces. 20%. That is massive. They have new and used vehicles for sale, private and commercial models. Westway Nissan have got branches all over the UK. They even have one in Aldershot, the home of the British Army. For those of you who know Aldershot, it's not far from the footy ground. It's on Windsor Way. It's about a two-minute walk, I think. I've not been to the to the footy ground, but I know where the branch is. If you're thinking about getting a new or used car, you can save yourself a ton of cash with Westway and a 20% discount for ex-military. Get online and have a look at westwaynissan.co.uk. Or better yet, get your ass into one of their branches and see the cars for yourself. Not only that, if you're ex-military and looking for work, Westway are massive on recruiting you guys and girls into all sorts of roles, from technicians and sales through to service receptionists. If you're stuck for work or not sure where you want to go in Civic Street, give Westway a call. They will help you out if they can. It's really nice people. Westwaynissan.co.uk and Westway Nissan on social media. Also sponsoring us today are Argus Europe. Argus Europe specialises in providing customised security solutions and bespoke training courses to both corporate clients and general public. Argus Europe can trace their roots back to 1985, becoming incorporated in 1992 when a small team of highly trained former special forces and military professionals with extensive UK and international operational experience came together under the Argus banner. In the early years, Argus was predominantly an operational company, supplying close protection for high net worth business people, their families and significant people within business, as well as supplying residential security teams to the same clientele. At this time, Argus also had multiple surveillance teams working on a large portfolio of clients. Argus Europe has been providing specialist training for high net worth clients and their families since the early 1990s, and more formally for those leaving the armed forces via the LCAR system since 2007. Training has been designed utilising special forces protocols. The training is diverse and can be tailored to specific needs. Close protection, surveillance, private investigation, situational awareness, practical security and defensive driving are part of the Argus training portfolio. Argus Europe pride themselves on the post-course support on offer to their students. Argus believe that every student who attends a course should have a platform to engage with the course provider and other students once their course is over. Many course providers say this, but very few live up to their promise and even fewer do it consistently for over 10 years. The Argus post-support platform provides help advice, guidance, an area to ask questions and receive answers from fellow professionals without fear of being shot down by a keyboard warrior. Another aim of the post-course support is that of employment opportunities. Although Argus makes no promises to anyone prior to coming on the course, there are some superb opportunities available via their group, often on a daily basis, some generated by Argus, others by former students and Argus group members, and that is possibly the most satisfying part of it all. I have actually experienced this directly myself, they don't promise employment when you leave the Argus course. However, it is almost always there for you. There's always an option to go and do some work. It's a really good group. Argus Europe run close protection, surveillance and private investigation courses 10 times a year. The people that conduct the training are still operating in the areas that they instruct. Argus Europe is based in County Durham. Find them at Argus Europe, the Cuddy UK. Oh, with Argus Europe on social media. On the podcast. First officer or first former officer in the British Army as a guest on the show. First, and I'm guessing is not going to be the last, Member of Parliament onto the show. Johnny Mercer, MP. Enjoy.
Live, mate. Fellas, I'm going to sit the cans Excellent. on. Yeah, we're going. Do I need to put these on? You can if you want. You don't no, have to. I, right. I, I, I'll, it's just uh, yeah. rolling away. Yeah. Um, firstly, thank you for giving me your time. No, I know pleasure. as an MP, you are extremely busy. Yeah. Secondly, I'll be mm. honest with you. Mm. I was, when I, when I approached uh, your office, Yeah. I was thinking, because I, 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 obviously you're, you're quite um, prominent at the moment. Um, wow. uh, in like well, I think you are quite prominent. <laughs> uh, certainly one of the more, more prominent yeah. uh, ex-military members yeah. of parliament going at the, mo- at the moment. I thought, ah, oh, be interesting to get on. And I thought, oh, God, he'll never come on. He never. So I, I, mm. I Google the office, got the office, and they said, oh, email the lady manager's diary. Yeah. And I was expecting back to, I was expecting back to have to submit a list of questions, what I couldn't couldn't <laughs> talk about. Da, 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 da. And, you know, and refreshingly, right. I've had none uh, of that, good. which I really appreciate. Honestly, no, I really no. Appreciate. I mean, look, these the way these things work is you get you get obviously a lot of um, traffic coming in the office, and you get a lot of requests. Um, but generally, anything to do. Look, I went into this uh, rather mad world because I'm fed up with the way this country's relationship with its military is at the moment. And so, when opportunities come up to engage with the veterans community, I'll take them. You know, I go in and speak at all manner of of um events or, or go to events that you know that often there is absolutely no tie between me and them other than i have served but i think it's right that people who have served or veterans have that political representation that i think we haven't had for a long time hmm true uh, there was a, there's a an article came out two days ago yeah which came across my new feed and it was saying it was something along the lines of 10 10 members of parliament you didn't know who uh, ex-military or something you know it was like a clickbaity title but it, right. it wasn't it wasn't clickbait i tell you what it was it was in um the guardian it was in the right. guardian right and you were on there with a, with a bunch of others right and one of the comments it was saying one of the observations that the article made was that um in is that it was speculating that it's better it's 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 more beneficial for the country and for the government to have um more ex-military in 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 positions of right uh, positions of um senior positions important sure. positions because yeah, yeah. it's a very small uh fra- it's a very small fraction of society yeah has experienced things like you have in yeah. conflicts you have mm. um but uh, so having that experience injected at the government mm. gives you a better perspective on critical decisions like mm. should we help out in the country should we assist yeah. an ally in this operation yeah. that and the impacts of it and and what real benefit we have on the ground yeah. in whatever well moment. i think i think i mean there's two there's two two points here one, one is that i i don't think uh you know sort of military services is, is it should be any sort of prerequisite for this sort of thing so we've had we've had great leaders who've had nothing do the military but similarly you know our greatest leaders people like churchill absolutely have and it, it certainly gives you a an insight and it gives you a it, the key thing really is is a perspective on what's going on because the you know particularly the political world if you if you think about the political world, world at the moment i mean everything is commented on everything you do is reported on um it's it's like a sort of fish tank world if you like and um the trouble is with with that sort of environment people can lose focus and perspective on what, on what is going pretty quickly actually uh, and make some pretty strange decisions um and you've seen that happen you know there's a there's a things like in westminster things like the expense scandal for example or 
the sexual harassment scandal we saw last year. I mean, these are symptoms of a of, of a culture, in in my view, that's become very disconnected with the people that we serve. Um, I think uh, you know there there are there are always multifaceted sides to this um you know some of the sexual harassment stuff was clearly nonsense but there was too much of it for it for people not to accept that there was a problem there and and i just think that if you live in this bubble world um you you can end up making decisions that are not in the best interests of a what you originally became a member of parliament for but b the country and i i think it can be yeah definitely quite dangerous you mean that you mean that the misdemeanors that uh the misdemeanors that have a, you talk about the expensive scandal and, and the um Sexual harassment by misdemeanor. I'm not playing it down as serious as things yeah. are. There are symptoms that the those people or the organisation involved become disconnected with the society. So. Yeah, precisely. I mean, if you if you, um, I mean, it's possible. Westminster is an amazing compound. I mean, it's possible to go in there. Um, you know, get off the train, get on the tube. Tube stops in Westminster. You can get up, go into the office. You can use the gym. You can eat there. You could never leave Westminster if you're in a safe seat. And, and the whole thing about our our democracy is that it's it's about uh, accountability um and you know and if you make yourself kind of not accountable um and you don't stay in touch with the people who elected you there um and you become you know you get treated very well as a member of parliament i think if you buy into that and take it too seriously i think it, it will cause problems um you know like you said at the beginning of this you know the idea that you would go and do a sit down chat and then vet all the questions and all this rubbish i mean it's so sort of uh, manufactured um i think frankly people have kind of had enough of that style of politics and i certainly have and that's why i joined up in the first place yeah uh, not just politics the way that the way that information is given to you in the, through the media you mm. know uh condensed down to 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 facts or figures often misconstrued or, or manipulated to mm. to get the to get the viewings to get the ratings to get the to get the hits uh, it's interesting what you're saying about um that disconnection from society uh that, that, that those um you know those scandals may be a symptom of uh the, the michael who just met one of yeah. the, we talk about all sorts but one of the things that we we were talking about we ended up going on <laughs> vaguely discussing government but just on oh dear. A, just by chance just by chance everyone right? switch off. i know yeah i know um but i uh with my old man it came up topic with my old man uh a few months back we sort of started on this thought experiment almost and it was discussing uh hypothetically that if we we're going to colonize another planet one of the questions that came up between us when we were discussing it is well if we're going to send 50 people um the first 50 to go and establish the colony would it be best to have 50 people chosen from the top one percent of the of the academics and intellectuals in the world of society the most capable people capable of thinkers or would it be better for those 50 people to be taken from a cross-section of society um and that when you were saying about that disconnect from the people who the people who run the country and society is that what's causing a disconnect? Is it is it because of uh, the 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 classes they're part of, middle and upper class? I don't or think it's it a, I don't think it's so much a class issue. Um, I think that uh, actually, you know, this country's moved away from class structures. I think pretty pretty quickly um, over the last ten fifteen years. I think clearly they exist, and I wouldn't deny that. Um, but I think it's less important. I think social mobility 
you know, you now have more people going to university, for example, from deprived backgrounds that we've ever had before. I think in that respect, we, we are getting better. But I don't really subscribe to the fact that, uh, you know, these sort of experts who, you know, clearly know an awful lot about certain things. I mean, you, you'll have seen it before. You'll have seen extremely intelligent officers in the, in the military who make ridiculous decisions when it comes to common sense. Um, you know, and that exists... Um, I'm afraid in in society as well. So you know, I'd certainly go for a cost cut of society, and simply, you know, you look at someone's sort of social standing, and a lot of the time that has nothing to do with who they are as an individual. A bit of bad luck, a few bad decisions, and that could actually be any one of us. It could be me. You know, I'm very very lucky to be in the position I am now. I've you know been been through a war a few times, wrote a book about it, become a member of parliament. All these things are. Yes, I've done my bit, but they, they're they predicated on a significant slice of good luck. Um, and you must never, you know, I never forget that, which is why, um, you know, I'm keen to sort of help everyone else out as, as much as I can, because, you know, you never know when it's going to end. Well, yeah. In fact, I'll step back from that. 2-9 command. Were you with Royal Artillery mm. the entire time you were in? Uh, pretty. That was my parent unit. I think yeah. we were on. The, I think we were on the same. So, one of the same Afghan tours. Really? So, no so what, who were you with? I was a three power. So. Oh uh, uh, right. When did you? Who? When, when were you in three power? <laughs> the grin in your face. <laughs> <laughs> Can't have everything, can you? Uh, Marines turn you down, uh, didn't they? <laughs> no, they turned down. Uh, did they take it? Oh, I was going to go down a line there. I'm not going to go down. No. Um, Spy. So, uh, Afghan. What? Yeah. Uh, Herc 4, Herc 8, Herc 13, so 2006, 2008. Good, so I did 2006 as well on the MLTs. Oh, did you? Yeah, so took over from you guys. Where were you, um, where were you with the omelette? Well, I did, uh, I did... Oh, in fact, OMLT, for the civilians who listen to this, is Operation, correction from Operational yeah. Mental Liaison Team. Correct, so, so that was a small Johnny? part, yeah, that was a small part of... Tassos Helman, which basically the start of the Afghan army and trying to get these guys in, recruit them, train them, take them on operations. Um, I was just, we, we were just essentially training in that time around Bastion, to, you know, and, and uh, you know, didn't really get up to much, to be honest. I mean, the, you know, the ground holding companies in those days were sort of definitely doing all the legwork. Um, and I wasn't involved in that. I did 2008 and nine um with a uh a group called uh tarsals 42 mm-hmm. um i then did 2010 i did a, a another ground holding operation um and i supported one lanks two lanks and then three para came in actually uh, at the end of that tour and we handed over to them what, what year was that 2010 oh, end of right, 2010 yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. they did a winter tour 2010 2011 i didn't involve i didn't um envy the uh omlt I, I remember that. No, the M O T was a bit of a joke, really, because. Well, no, 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 not from that regard. From from the difficult easy task. I mean, well, this is what I mean. I mean, I had, you know, I I had myself uh, a Royal Marines sergeant, three Royal Marines corporals, and ninety two Afghans, uh, and an interpreter who I'm not entirely sure was an interpreter. Uh, and it was chaos, absolute chaos. You know, you go out in the morning, they'd be fighting. Actually getting them to line up in three ranks and sit cross-legged in front of you was a significant undertaking. Um, and if you could achieve that, you were really onto something. So if you then push on, imagine pushing on from that to teaching them how to search a vehicle, teaching them what to do when you come under contact or small team drills and all this other stuff. I mean, it was a monumental undertaking. I think we've had much more success recently. I do think there was a serious element of tokenism in those early days around training the afghans um largely i think because 
as you all have experienced, I mean, I don't think anybody, um, I mean, the politicians had one view of going into Afghan in 2006. I think the military had a slightly more enlightened view that it wasn't going to be easy. But I think the, the nature of the conflict ultimately caught us all out. And that meant that it was extremely kinetic. The, the focus was on kind of staying alive rather than trying to, you know, do a counterinsurgency mission. Um, and, and we got off to the wrong foot. But you How know. long, how, do you know how long that um, operation was, or the campaign was planned for? Do you know how long they had ballpark? No, I don't. I mean, um, I don't know how long it was, it was planned for. Um, you know, there were silly comments flying around about, you know, doing helmet without firing a shot and things. I think the issue around longevity of conflict is, um, and the reason why, you know, our generation, I, I mean, I, I genuinely think that we have, as a generation of soldiers and warriors, we we kind of been privileged in a way, and clearly um, that's not the case for, 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 for a lot of people as well, but I, I feel like um, we learnt a lot. Um, we developed seriously quickly. You think how much the military developed between 2005 and 2013 even in terms of how we could keep blokes how long we could keep blokes alive for um you know our, our protective mobility that saved lives i mean you know most of us have been hit by an ied or two and uh you know and, and in in the early days they were pretty much non-survivable um and now you know people like me are sat here totally unaffected by it so you know we, we have been through a period of massive change but that has come at a serious cost there are blokes who have died who should not have died um there have been mistakes made and ultimately the government has not had the stomach for the fight so if you look at british foreign policy it's been almost entirely dictated by the british electoral system right so gordon brown could stand there in 2010 and say i brought the troops home from iraq was it the right time to leave iraq of course it wasn't um, you saw ISIS, what ISIS did, and you know, completely flattened the Iraqi army. Um, really pissed off the Americans, um, and then we went to Helmand, and then we withdraw so that David Cameron can stand up in 2015 and say, "Look, I brought all the troops home from Helmand, and we're now reinserting back into that conflict." I'm not saying it's it's the wrong thing to do to have a a timeline in your mind. But it doesn't take the brains of an archbishop to work out if you say to the Taliban year after next, we're going home, they're going to be like, fine, no sweat. We'll just wait it out. And then the whole thing becomes like, you're like, you know, why? why? I mean, it, it seems at the time, it seems kind of elements of it seem quite pointless anyway. I don't know what it's like for you, but we would do operations, seize the ground, nail it down, do a bit of work, have a sure, then leave and then do exactly the same thing to the same piece of ground two or three days later. Uh, and, you know, and that that element of pointlessness around it is it's very difficult for junior certainly junior leaders commanders soldiers and so on yeah it's a difficult type of warfare to understand it essentially it was um well the different various stages of the three different tours it was you know guerrilla warfare in, in no uncertain terms but mm. um and to to some of the examples you're saying there in whole ground give it back up out back in back out and that happened from a, on a small scale from patrol to patrol up to a massive scale was mm. the being a case mm -hmm. in point you know one example where we yeah. obviously the infamous incident 06 where, yeah. where they came out and then six months later a battle went a massive like a, it, it was almost yeah. the whole point it was the ceasefire right yeah, yeah withdraw yeah, yeah, everything yeah. will be all right yeah yeah that worked yeah. well didn't yeah. it and then, uh, 
you know, same happened in Sangin in, in 2010, um, you know, supposed ceasefire. And it, it just, it just, I think people underestimate what it took for junior commanders, as in junior soldiers, Lance Jacks, full screws, and junior officers to repeatedly sort of motivate and lead operations in what, it, you know, what remained an extremely dangerous environment. But without that um, sort of core vision of a mission, um, it was tough. And, and and I certainly found that in, in the first, you know, certainly in 2006. I mean, it just seems, it seemed like one of those mad colonial, um, you know, escapades, which actually went once, you know, blokes start getting shot, you think, you know, what, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. It was, it was a bit wild west it was a bit wild west when did you when did you join up so i joined in 2001 um you in fact you're the same age as me you're three months older than me so am i 2001 yeah oh yeah i i joined up so you joined in just a year after me then yeah oh, where did you go to you didn't go to uni no 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 so i um i grew up in a in a large family uh seven brothers and sisters and uh generally a naval family um my father when we reached the age of 16, generally um, liked us to sign up to the military. My three older brothers went into the Navy. Just like part of family Just life. like part of family life. <laughs> um, I wanted to go into the Army. Um, and uh, But I was, I was quite fortunate because I, I had developed this talent for music. Um, and I was actually uh, quite a good singer, choir boy in my youth. And oh, okay, so I managed to get a scholarship to... Um, Eastbourne College which is a public school and so I stayed there till, till I was 18 but uh, university was not not on the cards um, it was get a job and I did work for a little while in London in finance which was um, frightfully boring why is um, that so common amongst ex-officers it seems to me it's, it's so common because it's easy really yeah you, you just need to walk out money. through I always think well so many of you as in commission yeah. no, I wasn't commission yeah. so many of you guys able to go straight to those jobs it's easy so it's it's money easy. for old rope you know the sort of things get valued in the city are the sort of blustering um you know sort of overconfident um you know smile come what may is it like a general the same sort of area of money or finance that they go into or is it is it like i don't know or is it like just a broad range of things they go into wherever they may so uh, largely, I think it's where it's where the mates are. Right. Um, I don't think there's anything that uh, you can learn on a joint fires course that will teach you how to sort derivatives. Um, but I, I think generally it's yeah. Look, it's a it's a great thing for a lot of people to do and make a lot of money. I'm not knocking can, it. Uh, not knocking can, it. No, no, and they can uh, you know um, build their families and so on. But uh, it's, it's certainly not my cup of tea. Um, so I, I only that I did some exams and so on, but I, I just, you know, I was waiting to get in the military, and as soon as I could, I got went Sanders. I mean, I went Sanders at nineteen. The average age is twenty six. So, um, you know, and people with really? people with a degree, 26? yeah, and people like me in those days got paid less as well. So, so non grads have always been paid about two thirds of what graduates are paid. Wait, hang um, on, are you talking about in the military? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah. So if you're a non graduate officer, your promotion is slower, and you get paid less. Um, because but, they're trying to entice graduates you see. but hang on why is your promotion not performance based no of course it's not it's all time based what do you mean of course it's not well it's well, I know I know, I know, army I know up about, to, you know I know you I know you can't second... get promoted on merit I mean what a terrible idea that is <laughs> 
I know second lieutenant, lieutenant, and second captain lieutenant, lieutenant, tight, captain, and then major sort of. And then to be fair, you know, merit, merit obviously comes into it a lot more. I think when people start taking these jobs seriously. But I, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I I can't remember anybody not being promoted from second lieutenant to lieutenant. And no, you'd have to be pretty I remember dire. one guy who left the army as a lieutenant didn't make captain, which was quite an achievement. Um, but I'm afraid to sort of burst that bubble. There isn't some sort of cutthroat selection testing requiring you to go from second lieutenant to lieutenant. It is literally yeah, time yeah, served. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, for, 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 for you... Right. Well, aside from view, at least you do a leadership course. Well, I don't know what you do in the parish. No, but I mean, but... it's the same as the second lieutenant, lieutenant. It's the same as like a private being a grade three, whatever it's in depot, and then a grade two and a grade one. You know, that's just you just get it. Right. Um, but you, you don't you get pay... you don't just get promoted to lance jack or full screw. No, that's different. You, you know, so you you know you, you have to do leadership. But, but it's in a different way, though, is it not? You, do you not? Do you not get? Does it not get indicated whether you're going to be like? Colonel, or no, is it? No, because no, no. just... you get your you get your reports, right? Don't you? Do you remember you used to get your annual report? Maybe look, you look despairing at me, mate. The I annual report. In my head, all captains are awesome. No, obviously, that's no, not well, the case. N- well, no, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Um, you get your annual report. Where you sit down with your boss and they read out. I mean, eight out of ten of them say the same thing. You know, this guy's got great potential. You know, he's got potential to be a major, a colonel. A, you know, and it's. I mean, the career management in in the military. I've, I've got to be honest, is pretty woeful. Yeah. Um, and uh, whilst you know, I, I'm sure they're better than they were the sort of seven years ago. What? No, when did I leave? Three, only four years ago I left. I mean, they were terrible. Um, you know, I, I always had this picture of sort of MCM div. You know, that place in Glasgow where you go, where officers' jobs are handed out. You know, you go up there and sit down with some guy, and he, he talks about your career. In reality, I think it was basically a big tombola. And you walk in and they spin it as you walk in and then the job falls out the bottom and they, they will then say to you that you've been selected for that job. Um, you know, so I mean, uh it's pretty, I had some amazingly funny I remember one trip to <laughs> to MCM with this guy, this this officer who was slightly junior to me. and we'd been on tour, I think. Um and so we'd missed the regimental visit to to um uh of MCM to the regiment and we we went up to see MCM and we had to drive a car so we were in a hire car I can't remember where it was from it was from somewhere in the south all the way to Glasgow so we went up there stayed the night long time in the car and the whole time we were bantering about like what MCM did were going to say to us you know what horrific job you're going to get given go and change the coffee you know at, at some training regiment and so on and there was this one job I can't remember what it was and I would never repeat it anyway but uh, this guy, my friend, his name was Will, was saying he just kept joking about getting this job and how he knew it was going to happen and blah blah blah. And, you know, and we both go in and you, you think, oh, it won't happen to me. And I, I was alright. I can't remember what I got. Um, but I remember he went in before me, came out of his interview. I was like, all right, mate, how did that go? And he he was just white and speechless, absolutely <laughs> speechless. So I was like, shit. You know, I wonder wonder what happened there. So anyway, went for my interview, came back, got in the car. He didn't speak to me until we left scotland so glasgow's like not on the border it's like halfway up right yeah. he was spe- he was so shocked he was so angry 
Um, I remember our, our commander phoned us, commanding officer, and he wouldn't speak to him on the phone. It was on like speakerphone, and he wouldn't speak to him. It was one of the funniest uh, episodes entirely at this poor chap's expense. Um, but uh, that is career management within yeah. the military. I've right? got a mate who's, who's having dramas at the minute. He's still in. He's he's he's, he's injured. Mm. Um, it's not sort of conventional injury, should we say? Uh, and he's he's just been he's just been been shat on by mm. by his command structure. Um, it's really it's not good at all, really. But um, he'll he'll sort it out. I'm sure he will. He's he's got a handle on it. Um, but we're digressing there. What when you were you got out in two thousand and fourteen? Yeah. You did you? What, what did you decide straight away to get into politics? No, not at all. I mean, I. <clears throat> it was a growing experience, really. And a lot of it came from my first sort of interaction with politicians. A lot of it from operational experience. So, um, you know, particularly in times when I was working at Tier Forty Two and things like that, um, I remember politicians would come out and get briefed on sort of operations and so on. And I just remember looking at them, thinking, you know. Um, we could basically say say whatever we wanted. Like, we're all running off the back of the lifter in chicken suits. And they'd just nod and go, yeah. The politicians would. Politicians, yeah. And I thought, it's a crazy system, this. But uh, actually, they've got the power, right? They can say yes or no or whatever. And actually, if there's something you really care about, if there's something you really want to change, if there's something you really believe in and you want to change it, you're going to have to get elected. And I just sort of parked that for a bit because I was thoroughly enjoying my military career. I was a joint fires operator, so it was a good job and I was away quite a bit. Um, but then as I, I went back out in 2010, did another tour, um, and it's pretty rough in, in 2010. Quite a lot of guys um, were injured and, 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 and uh, my act was killed and things like that. And I saw the way his family was, was uh, looked after, which on the whole was positive, but you, you, know, you come into families where the experience isn't so positive. Um, and I just... Uh, and then the veterans thing really began to bite me as in how we look after our veterans in this country and the disconnect. I remember coming back in 2010 and I couldn't go to Remembrance Day because I felt so bitter about the way the country um, treated veterans or even saw veterans, you know, particularly politicians. I couldn't watch them at the cenotaph behave in the way they did. And then, you know, with this sort of uh, veneer of respect and so on. And then... Um, the reality of it, which was being felt by veterans up and down the country. And I thought, and then in 2012, more of the blokes killed themselves and were killed in conflict. I remember particularly um, the story of the uh, of the chap down in Sennybridge who I spoke about during my maiden speech who um, took his life on the training area down there. And we've all been down Sennybridge and we know what it's like. And you can just imagine what that's like. And he took a video of himself and sent it to his mum just before he died. And saying what? Just basically saying, I'm so sorry. You know, I just can't get my shit. I can't. Who is this? Uh, so he was a guy in uh, in the Royal Welsh. Um, I remember this. His uh, his name escapes me momentarily. Just bear with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Danny something. Yeah, Sandy Bridge was grim. Sandy Bridge was grim, especially. If- like a Tom Rolands track, you just get thrashed all there. Thrashed all there. So yeah. he must have done a tour before and then and then just and then Well he was in the Royal Welsh, he'd been on a few. Um and uh um he 
tried to get help um but he came back and found it was you know just the experience i think that a lot of people have a very patchwork of care you're going from one care provider to another you're retelling your story and what it makes you feel like ultimately is that no one gives a shit and that and that kind of piles on top of the difficulty of dealing with post-traumatic stress as it is and um you know the if you think about what takes a military guy you know what lads are like you know it takes that person to get to a place where they want to end their life that is a horrific journey and for the country not to sit up and take that seriously as i felt they didn't when we reached that watermark in 2012 um i don't think it's improved i don't, I don't, I don't think, think it has improved, improved but that's not. what that's what prompted me to think how do I, you know can i go and join help heroes can i go and work for local authority go in the probation service and then i remember back to when i was in afghan and uh briefing politicians and so on i thought you know what i'm gonna try and be an mp and I had never, I'd never voted before. I had no experience, no interest in politics. Um, but for me, it's it's this vehicle, you know. It, it is ultimately people have only heard of me. I've only, you know, got this platform. You know, you're very kind, but the, those, you know, those accolades or whatever, it's only because I've been elected, right? So in in a way, it's what's it's sorry, proved what's itself. It's only because you've been elected. Well, this, you know, people know who I am. People know the agenda. People. Um, things that I've managed to do around closing the Iraq historical allegations team, things like that, they only come about because I made that decision to be a member of parliament. So it's been vindicated in that respect. Um, but it's... Uh, look, I, I, I make no bones about it. I, it hasn't been a roaring success. I think we've had uh, we've had windows of light. Um, but the trouble is... What are you referring to? In terms of improving veterans' care in this country okay, yeah, and yeah. resetting this nation's relationship with her military, which is what I came into this to do. Um, we've had chunks of light. Um, you know, I did an inquiry into the Iraq historical allegations team and uh, managed to shut that down. Um, you know, a £60 million project. You know, you get told by the Ministry of Defence, oh, we're never going to shut this, blah, blah. And then you why, can't why, do that. Why, why the why did it get brought about? I don't. I don't. I so it got brought I, about because um, because we've got ourselves in a real muddle when it comes to legislation and operations. So essentially, European human rights law applies in operation. So um, the uh, so a, a combatant or a non-combatant can allege a crime. Um, you know, so a civilian in Iraq or Afghanistan. It has to be investigated by law there has to be an outcome from that um, and it has to go through the courts and now clearly if you know that and warfare are not compatible um, it's very hard to distinguish who's a combatant and who's not it's very hard to prove that things did or didn't happen but the problem the government made and the MOD made was that it started paying out compensation to make this stuff go away right so Mrs Miggins from Nadi Ali would come in and say you tool my washing line down and they'll go okay fifty dollars you know that starts it then someone comes in and says you killed my cow okay a hundred dollars and someone comes in and says you killed my son and they're like right okay and it and clearly there are occasions when that happens right and we take it mega you know what it's like we take it mega seriously uh, and we do everything we can to avoid it uh, and where things go wrong we make them right however so excuse me bless you however if you start paying out for claims 
without even speaking to the blokes who were there first. And you will then build this industry, yeah. right? That people like Phil Shiner will look at and think, actually, there's a cut in that for me. If I can go out to Afghan or Iraq and I can get an industrial load of these claims and I get 5, 10, 15% of each of them, I'm going to make millions of pounds. That's what they did. And instead of the government thinking, right, it's something funny here, either three and a half thousand of our troops in Iraq committed war crimes or there's something not quite right, um, they, they, for some reason, entertained the idea that there was a mass breakdown of discipline and law and order in the military in Iraq in 2000 and 2005. And, um, you know, for those of us who's, who, who've actually served, I mean, clearly... Um, you will always have your bad apples and things go wrong. I actually think there is a a very resilient system of uh, of justice within within the military. Um, no one actually wants to be associated with guys who um, who break the law in that manner. Um, and actually, the military does self regulate pretty well. You will have instances where it goes wrong. Um, Baha Musa was a, an incident that went wrong, um, but by and large. Uh, you know, you, you can't spend millions of pounds training uh, corporals, sergeants, officers, commanding officers in integrity and in the core values and so on, and then completely side with the enemy when they make an allegation against them. It, it makes no sense. And we got ourselves into a real pickle and people who are being affected by it, it was appalling because the MOD essentially, um, they essentially sort of contracted the, the investigations out to a company called Red Snapper loads of ex or coppers just going around and they would knock on doors. They wouldn't come knocking on my door. They'd go to privates and lance corporals who were maybe, um, you know, struggled to deal with their experiences from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, couldn't remember quite what was going on. Try and build a case. I mean, it was literally bullying, sort of picking on, picking on, on, uh, on uh, individuals they thought they were going to get somewhere with. And uh, yeah, it was um, it was shocking, shocking dereliction by the the government. You know, you only got to speak to people like Brian Wood. Have you seen him? Um, no, I've had you know, some speak um, to people like him. I've had some dealings with him on uh, social media, but I, I yeah, yeah I and speak to him about his experience. I mean, it's completely unacceptable. Yeah, I, I one of those. It's very um, it's it's very easy for us to see how ridiculous those that that amount of claims would be two and a half thousand you say over five yeah. years when we've been part of the organization and granted you, you and i have two separate parts two separate sort of um you know parts of you you're an, you're an officer very much in the, you know the commander um strategist if you like and uh, you know he's a, a senior nco but in, we have we from a following the rules perspective i witnessed all the way through my career from a private up to when i was a commander as i'm sure you did um the the emphasis placed on do not break the rules yeah do not break the rules the rules of engagement and if you step outside those lines mm. you'll get hammered yeah hammered and, like and people did and, and like you, you said control. there are isolated pockets you yeah. get isolated pockets. i was very lucky not to not to be around those people there are i know of isolated i heard of isolated incidents where there was you know People did stuff they shouldn't have done. Yeah, you know, I'm talking little things like flipping, just cause some damage they shouldn't have done. Yeah. To, you know, and yeah. aside from that, none. Well, I used to kind of like take it personally in a way. So, as a commander, if you see 
if you see something happen that uh, shouldn't have happened, I, I used to ask myself what sort of environment I was creating where the blokes thought that this was an acceptable way to behave. So clearly I would um, deal with it with the individual concern, but I'd also ask myself those questions as to what sort of environment was I creating where individuals felt that this was an appropriate way to behave. And I, I, actually, you know, the, I mean, we've, the Marine A issue has been very um, divisive in the military community, very, um, very kind of polarizing. Um, but I'm still yet to find a serving individual in, in one of the units I serve with who, who thinks he did the right thing and thinks he shouldn't be punished. I, um, I, and that's, yeah, that's I the reality of it. You know, you will have lots of old and bold who say you should have done this and should have done that and back in my day and so on. Reality is we are judged on our professionalism. And if you, and, you know, by his own admission, if you let those standards slip, you, you, you do the, you know, you do take punishment. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a lot of people lost their heads over that. Um, and certainly as a as a public figure, it was quite interesting watching. It was a, watching I, I, it I think it was a combination. I, I agree with you. He, 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 he broke the law. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, mm. shouldn't have happened, right? But at the same time, I think he was maybe scapegoated slightly. I, think oh, I agree with that as well. And there's a way of you know, there's a way of dealing with these things. There's a way of treating these individuals. There's a way of you've got to ask yourself what were the series of events that led him to do that. Um, and I think you know they've had the investigation and so on. But in terms of rotating troops in and out, I mean, I remember, um, I remember in 2010 when, uh, when um, one of my soldiers was killed, and I was. Talking about, I saw the commanding officer, and I was relaying to him what it was like at my patrol base. And I think we've been in continuous combat twice a day for forty-two days, and at that stage, um, and it was then to go. And this was the beginning of the summer, so it's going to go on and on. And uh, he couldn't kind of believe it. He was like, "Well, this is ridiculous." You know, even in the Second World War, they would do three weeks, four weeks at the front and get rotated around. And now we've got some seriously combat-hardened individuals. Um, and I think we just, you know, we've got to keep sight on, on what it is. I mean, there's two sides to the coin. I, I don't think we should do six-month tours. I think we should do longer than that. But if you are going to get individuals who Longer? In, yeah, I do. Really? Yeah. yeah, I do. Because I feel that um, if you are to really understand a counterinsurgency challenge or you're, for example, working in counterterrorism or you're going up against the networks in that country, you know, the Americans do year-long tours and they look at us and 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 they think we haven't got it right and in that case i agree with them when it comes down to combat it's a different matter so if you have guys like who man the lines like we did going through six seven months of continuous combat then that's a different issue oh, okay. but i yeah. think certainly at the commander level certainly in these mentoring roles where it's all about building up those relationships with the kandak commander with the interpreters and so on i think yes we should be looking at a longer time away i i okay i agree with you i yeah, mm, I can see why you say longer from that perspective. I agree with you, but those to feel those benefits of that to to get to have that, for that to work, the 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 fighting troops because the fighting troops need to be there for that length of time as well. Now, to, mental mental health aside, right? Impacts of war aside, okay. Yeah, but that's um, got to be managed. So during the war. Yeah. Yeah. During the war, okay, they would do 30, 30 days at the front and then go and regenerate, force regenerate and so on. Mm -hmm. um, during the Second World War. And that, that's the way to manage it. And they only, they only got there because they realised if they did more than that, 
then their operational effectiveness would fall off and their professionalism would uh, would reduce and things like that. So they came in about this system where they would do 30 days on the front and come back. It's very much, very similar in Vietnam. And we didn't adopt that in Afghanistan. And, and I think that, that has led to a few problems for some of our, certainly our most combat fatigued individuals. But can that, can, can just 30 days, can that, would that reduce the... Personal, professional, and emotional investment in in a, in a battle or in a campaign for the individual, and then they're not. If you're, if I mean, if I was have thirty days and you're getting out, thirty days, I would be th- maybe. Yeah, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't do the two or thirty days and go home. You do your thirty yeah. days and you rotate, and you then go to Bastion and do I'm, your training cycle for a bit, okay. or you would go and um, you know get go to a different area where it's not so busy. I think you've got to be um, professional and rotate your people in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that uh, you know people can uh, you know um, you can manage their experiences and well, I think one I think certainly think that a, a factor in uh, Sam Blackman was uh, was that issue how far into the tour was it so he I think his incident was sort of four months in um, and in that I mean I was actually in that PB the, the year before him and it, it was um, where was it? So it was up in in Nadi Ali, um, near near. Uh, well, it's in Nadi Ali North. Um, oh, whereabouts? In a place called uh, well, um, it was called Kamar PB Kamar. I was, I was there. there. I was there in 2011. Yeah. So so if you yeah. uh, if you go from Kamar over to Route Nike, and then you've got the jungle in the middle, 31 West, where yeah. they all got pushed up from Marja by the Americans. Yeah. So basically, that that place is riddled with with mm-hmm. the Taliban. Um, and um, so Kamar was that incident happened or that area. It was that area. There was, so was a couple it? of smaller PBs along Route Nike. It was one of those. Quadra, I can't remember the name. Quadrat, of name. Um, Quad CP Quadrat is up the top. That's right. And then down on Route Nike on the right hand side of that AO, on the eastern side, there's Gazni. Two, yeah, Gazni. around there. Gazni was down yeah, there, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It was, exactly. Yeah, yeah Gazni was that um, hive. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, that's where it happened. Um, and look, you could never, we, we weren't there. I mean, I, I think a lot of us have been in that position and not chosen that course of action. But, um, you know, uh, shit happens, and and we have to maintain standards. In my mm-hmm. view, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I agree. I absolutely agree. Why, um, why? I thought I this. I asked this question. I asked this question constantly. at regarding the the mental health side of things. Why are we? And when I say we, I'm referring to UK, US, Canada. I can't speak for Australia. Or, or why are we not learning the lessons from previous wars and applying them going forward? I'm talking about I'm talking about um, dealing with the mental health issue. I'm talking about learning tactical and strategic decisions, things like rotating people in and out more mm. frequently. That you're talking about why aren't we carrying it forward? What what is stopping us doing it? We've got all the historical documentation mm. there. We've got all the records. What what is going wrong from a military perspective? What's going? Past I think you? when it comes to looking after people, I think people are very quick to forget. So if you look at, I mean, I never served in Iraq, right? But if you look at what we, um what we would you know you had the the initial punch into iraq and there were weeks when iraq um was busy but if you if you look at the sheer levels of combat okay afghanistan was a different matter the british army had not seen that really over sustained periods since korea and that wasn't my view that was the view of uh, david richards chief defense staff at the time um so we had not experienced that that 
that level of because if you think about what combat is it is testing all of your processes all your equipment all your training it's a persistent test and a, a spotlight and um you know we made massive uh, strides in that time but we were quite a long way behind the curve why were we because we we you know we had northern ireland which was extremely dangerous and very very difficult but a very different war um and i think a, a lot of a lot of the time you lose that sort of um corporate knowledge within an organization um i think when it comes to winning the counterinsurgency i think you know i mean i write a little bit about that's my book not everyone agrees with me but i, I did becoming if you're if you're a joint fires guy like me you serve with lots of different explain, units right? explain that so joint fires is um your um, you get into contact with sections or platoon or company or whatever it is or patrol and your job is to decisively end that engagement so that you can withdraw or uh, win the battle and so by decisively using by decisively drafts. you have you have a couple of radios on your back and you can talk to air aviation um, artillery mortars missiles and so on and you have to um, think about a weapon to target match so you're not going to destroy the whole village when you've only got a sniper but at the same time it needs to be accurate and you need to you know the first the, the most number of casualties come in an ambush in the first nine seconds don't they? because nobody's expecting it so you've got to be able to re-seize the initiative particularly if there's only six or seven of you and you're you're kind of surrounded so that was that's your role as a joint fire so you spend a lot of time on the radio while sort of maintaining your situational awareness you'll often have a uh, a skilled soldier with you as well who is trained in in either air aviation or one of these things but as the as the commander you're you're training all of them and your sort of names on the bomb so um and uh, you have to have 22 of them at any one time in a conflict like afghan because they are your insurance policy if a base gets overrun um you know the only way you're going to you're going to defend yourself is through joint fires so um you know it's, it's it's a good job um but if you do that job you will serve with a number of different units people commanders in Afghanistan and I did get the feeling certainly after the auto 2006 7 and then I was out in 8 9 and then 10 again I felt people were getting to a dangerous mindset about Afghanistan where they wanted to do Afghanistan to get it on their report to command troops at war to potentially get some sort of write up because it was good for their career and so all I noticed was that commanders would come in and a lot of them would behave at the major colonel level like the whole war had been waiting for them to arrive and they had their strategy and they were going to win the war in their seven months and i'm afraid that went up to the brigade commanders um at times but all of them had a well a lot of them had a very different uh, outlook as to how to achieve success in afghanistan um and that's why I think, you know, we should sometimes do longer tours, you know, and get that perspective. You, you know, if you if you think about the difference between doing a winter and a summer tour in Afghanistan, it's huge. Mm. Um, and different techniques will work at different times. I mean, you know, as well as I do, as soon as the poppy harvest finishes, I mean, literally that night, um, you're into the fighting season for a good four or five months until it starts getting chilly. Um, that is a completely different experience from going out and doing deliberate operations uh, over the course of the winter. One of the reasons... You know, Kamar and 31 West and that area and Quadrat is is so contested is because the operation into Marja went in over the winter of 2009-10. And then that summer, when I was there, it was the first summer where all these guys had been hemmed into 31 West. And of course it was going to go mad. Um, 
but but that uh you know that wasn't sort of um wasn't sort of um handled correctly in my view and i think there was an element of commanders wanting to do afghan um and for 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 technicians or professional soldiers like like you and me who you know we don't command hordes of people but we we end up doing the majority of the fighting uh it can it can become a little bit nauseating mm. mm -hmm. um how would you win a counterinsurgency oh that's a million dollar question i think you know <laughs> people have people have written some very good books on it how to eat soup with a knife and so on um you can i'm going to rephrase that can you can you eat soup with a knife can you no <laughs> <laughs> it takes a long time can you can, can you, you win can yeah. you mm -hmm. we fought some very successful counterinsurgency operations were, could afghan have been one afghan's a different uh issue i mean afghan as a country is a define uh, win define win what's winning? well this is what i mean i mean you know so you've got to redefine what success looks like what what uh um what a win means in afghanistan but a lot of this is down to um thanks a lot of this is down to the political management of expectations right so if actually politicians had not said things like we'll go in without a shot being fired and then seen all these casualties coming back if they'd have said look this is a really difficult counterinsurgency campaign however 9-11 the actual plot behind 9-11 came out of afghanistan we have to go there and try and deny these guys a nation state to operate within then you know it, a lot of it comes down to honesty uh, a political misunderstanding of the military and the use of military force and an inability of politicians to bring the country with them um, I mean, it's easy to forget now. A million people marched in London against the Iraq War before, in on the eleventh of March two thousand three. A million people, and we still went to war. Was that the, was that the true intent of um, the Afghan, the Afghan campaign? Do you think that uh, was to go and deny foothold for um, the Taliban to get no? To yeah, I think the I think. Um, well, what sort of thinking about it the 9-11 um was hatched in afghanistan because um you know the taliban government decided to let al-qaeda and Osama bin laden operate um within afghanistan and wouldn't wouldn't hand them over so they then had the real estate and the country and the resources to plan a huge strategic terrorist atrocity as in 9-11 um we then went out on ochikana in 2001 out to afghanistan but arguably the drumbeat was rolling for Iraq, which was an incredibly unpopular and in hindsight, you know, not, not the right thing to do. Iraq becomes this massive vacuum that sucks up all the resources and the people. The eye gets taken off Afghanistan. And then when you go back to finish a job in Afghanistan, it's got 10 times worse. And you're starting, you know, back from where you should never be. I've come to believe, rightly or wrongly, and feel free to try and correct me if, if you think otherwise, which I suspect you do, is that... Um afghan the, the real behind the curtains motivation one of the motivations for going there was not obviously there was not what was was portrayed in the media and they're saying they're trying to get the foothold and they overplayed that threat i think um sorry was culture. what was what was sorry so i've come to believe that mm -hmm. the reason we were told that we were going to afghanistan one of the reasons there was a load of different reasons and it, and it, and it sort of changed over the course of the campaign mm -hmm. as well the, the reasons we were in there 
Um, what you're saying there about going into line and the Taliban a foothold and yes, absolutely. The, the, mm. the idea that nine eleven was hatched and planned and mm. you know, the, it's I, I yeah, but what did it become? Yeah. Um, I couldn't believe that the reason we were in, one of the reasons we we're in there is because geographically and politically at the time and over the course of the campaign and even now, um, but although less significant now, Afghan country where it is and that, that political side of things, it was it was part of a, a power struggle in that area, or not a struggle, or a, yeah, a power Between struggle who? area, Russia, China, the West, and that's part of it established there, established there. And I, I think I think I think very similar. I think you're similar, right, but I think I think it's kind of twenty years out of date because I think that's what the Russians were doing in Afghanistan. You know, they did not want. Absolutely. The Americans did not want. You don't that think it was a rerun? Communism. I don't think it was because, especially with the state um, of China at the time. If you no, I know, but I, I just, I, I just, um, I'd love to think that much thought went into it, but I don't think it did. <laughs> uh, I think, um, look, I, I, I'm of the view that going to Afghanistan was not the wrong thing to do. I think it was the right thing to do. I think that there is a, you know, certainly when I was working at the strategic level doing counterterrorism. There is a very clear link between um, operations being planned uh, in Afghanistan and um, safety in the UK. And that was very, very clear to me. Um, we lost our way because I think too many people had their own agendas as to how they were going to solve the war. I mean, if you look at drugs, we, we you know, for a while we did nothing about drugs at all. Uh, and then some commanders would decide to do something about the drugs and the violence would increase. And, you know, there just seems to be, I mean, if you remember, one of our huge achievements was getting this bloody turbine up to, um, oh, yeah, yeah, still not being installed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's there though, Johnny, it's there. Mission it's there, with, mission it? with the company. Yeah, what, what, what a success. It was rotting in the desert. Uh, thinking about what you're saying about longer, uh, long serving longer in, on these operations. One of the things I've heard before um, is that, and this actually would, make, would tie into what you're saying, um, is the suggestion that the terms of the terms of um, terms of service, like the prime minister's four years, right? Yeah, five, five, sorry, five. That that is too short. It should be longer. As in, uh, what do you mean? So you're it should be longer. To regiments, it should be longer. Two to three years should be five to six years. The, the, I'm talking about the PM. Like the, the oh, link. prime minister should be longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, there's there's definitely an argument for that. I think the um, and, and I agree with you. I think uh, you know these short terms don't allow any sort of strategic, difficult decisions to be made, and mm. any sort of plan or agenda or vision be um, sort of promulgated to the British people for them to believe and get behind them and actually see some social change and advancement in the country. I I do agree with that. The converse side of that is that you get a terrible prime minister, you're not going to get rid of him. Um, but how much? Uh, how much? A question for you yeah. on that. How much, realistically, how much control does the PM have? And the reason I'm the reason I'm asking is, and I'm, this is not just like I'm not just talking about UK yeah. government, talk talk about US, talk about anywhere with like a democratic society and a, and a parliament or a, a senate or whatever it may be. Is is it not? If the PM changes over, and even if the party changes, is it not pretty much the same? structure underneath the same look if you change a co in a unit right if yeah, you change a co in a like unit that. it's nothing like go that. on and explain the prime minister is the chief executor i i'm my politics i'm not knowledgeable no, 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 no. explain it to me of all sort of government policy party policy what goes on 
if you were to see, for example, you know, forget their Labour and Conservative, um, if you were to see an individual like Jeremy Corbyn um, in number 10 Downing Street, this country would fundamentally change. Now, some people want that to happen. They have. They fine. literally have that much power. They have that much it's... power to fundamentally change the state, whether in terms of taxation, whether in terms of the welfare state, uh, security, foreign policy. Um, all these decisions come down to the government of the day. You know, whether it's even a tactical decision as to whether or not we're going to decide to try and do a hostage rescue in whatever country it might be um, to uh, uh, what the corporation tax level is going to be and, and and corporation tax you know goes up and down actually if you reduce it you get more businesses coming in and you get a greater tax coming into the country um, some people morally have a problem with that and they think actually our corporation should be taxed to the rafters the problem is now is that they all go to different countries but there is two different political ideologies that will fundamentally change this country. So yeah, I mean, the Prime Minister's got a huge amount of authority, a huge amount of, um, of uh, yeah, influence, uh, and basically runs the show, as they should. I mean, that is, you know, we're a democracy and we're a proud democracy. Yeah, I was kind of hoping they didn't. <laughs> I, I was kind no, of I'm hoping. Not. I was kind of hoping. No, I'm afraid I not. I mean, <laughs> I remember when I first went to Westminster, I kept thinking I'd go into a room at some point, I'd open a door and see a whole line of desks and people and, some people who knew what they were doing but unfortunately it doesn't exist it's just a group of guys like me or not like me trying to do their best for the country what's your day to day like what's it like working with civvies no it's fine nonetheless, like it. nonetheless civvies but no, civvies in I Westminster mean, the thing <laughs> is about the, the military and resettlement right is that where people get it wrong is that they 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 forget that actually the military is a really privileged sanitised environment okay you're with young people who want to be there generally on the whole, um, who are fit, motivated, look after themselves. The real world is not like that at all. The real world is full of lots of different people with lots of different challenges. And actually, it is the real world, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's no point coming out and saying, oh, I can't, I can't, you know, this civvies this and civvies that. That is the real world, right? And you've got to you've got to make it work. You've got to get. There's no point hanging up your uniform and pressing it every weekend in your locker, harking back to the army. Don't you know? The civilian life is the real world, and you've got to get on with it, and you've got to adapt. And I think um, we we can and should and must and will always do more for those who leave the services. But I can't help but feel some don't help themselves as much as I would like them to. We've got some amazingly gifted people in the military. Um, who I've had the privilege to work with over the last 14, 15 years. Um, but I, when it comes to resettlement, um, I think uh, it's a, as much about mindset as anything else. I mean, look, leaving and getting turned down for, for your first few jobs is going to be pretty disconcerting for any military guy. It, in, in civilian street, that is normal. You'll apply for a number of jobs before you get one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in in the military, things are often taken care of, tax returns and so on. And you've just got to get on with it in civilian life because this is the real world. It's the way, you know, and so people people have this perception that, you know, the military is is how everything should be. And it's, it's not actually the case. The military is there to fight and win on operations. That's it. Um, and yes, there will be parts of that that are fantastic. Core values, standards, teamwork, selflessness, uh, the commando uh, uh, qualities and so on. Um, but it's not the real world, mm. unfortunately. No, unfortunately, that, you're right. That, that, that adapting. I mean, um, 
the the military is an it's it's elitism, you know, and rightly so. That's the mm, that's, that's all that's I it. Hear. You you have to, and it took me a while to realise it and learn it. You know, mm, it uh, takes everybody a while, and it, I think um, you know, the faster people get away from this mindset that you know, kind of, civvies are useless and everything in the military is perfect. I mean, it's something you know. There's some amazingly gifted people who never go near the military. No, um, yeah. who you will meet in your day-to-day -day life um and uh i've never had the view that just because simply because you've served um or simply because you've done stuff on operation i mean you, you look at it operationally i always struggled with the sort of honors and awards system because actually i've seen some people do some amazing things and never heard never had any recognition for it or you know they just frankly got on with it and not talked about it I've also seen some people win honours and awards for the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of. Um, so it's all about individuals, I think, and, and an individual's sort of qualities and characters and, and, you know, as to how you make it outside the military. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's doable. And definitely everyone needs a bit of a helping hand and a bit of luck. Absolutely. And the systems there should be there to help those who don't get that. It's it, the distribution of knowledge as well. I, okay, one of the reasons I started this and one of the reasons Michael you know start a declassified yeah. podcast that distribution of knowledge you you get out you immediately and this can be said for any organization when you like be part of for any amount of years whether you're military mm -hmm. or not you leave it and you you you're you you you've all of a sudden disconnected from it if, if it's if you're trying to move into something else and and you don't know it mm. how are you supposed to get the information how yeah. do you know you can't join your own experience yeah. so it's it's and 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 again going back it's that's part of the mental health issue distribution of information i didn't you know there's there's, there's over the last um year year and a half like year over the last year i've been you know i i've thought about it for a while i want something to help me because my own problems going on mm. um and that was off the back of four three or four months of badgering by one of my closest friends yeah Got get there, go there, get there, go there. Yeah. That was off one of them. Um, and in the end, I just got to a very, 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 very bad place. And um, and and went in, and went in. It wasn't just, you know it's a lot more fucking difficult than that. Yeah. But as soon as I entered that, um, that not not healthy heroes, but that, that as soon as I got into that sort of not cycle, I was there. I was I I made the first step. As soon as yeah. in that world yeah. of this, this all of a sudden, the support that I could see, or that was that was available to me. Yeah, it was like it was like day and night, Johnny. It was like yeah, day yeah, and night. It was like yeah, day and night. Yeah, I yeah. had a million problems, right? Yeah, yeah. A million problems. Nine hundred ninety-nine thousand nine hundred ninety-nine of those were in my head, you know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but yeah. there was so many things that I could help yeah. me straight away. Yeah, I thought it was just the relief, and and, and I thought straight away. Well, I, and I've thought it a few times over different different things, yeah. professional career as well. I wish I had known this before. I wish someone had told me. It was different with yeah. the mental health. My mate had been telling me, and I heard it from other pieces. But you, you, your mental state is different. You don't accept it. I heard it before. It's like when I went into CP in the Middle East. Yeah, I stepped on the ground in Iraq, and I went. Uh, I had loads of mates that were doing that on the project I was on, and I knew very little. And I stepped there, and I went. I, I, not the right kit. I buy too much of all sorts. There was all sorts of information I didn't know, and I literally underground. I thought, oh wait. Why, I wish I'd known this yeah, before yeah. I'd set the plane before I got yeah, out. I yeah. wish I'd known this. Yeah. Why didn't Why didn't they tell me? Yeah. It's that distribution of information. Mm. How would you get it out there? And it's through things like having people in the right place, mm -hmm. like like um, 
like Michael doing his thing. You got uh, there's an there's an organization on Facebook of all places, right? Let's say of all places, right? Common. There's a Facebook group on there. I don't know if you know of it. It's called the Warriors Art Warriors uh, Warriors Ops Warriors Warriors RV. It's called right. It's called that. Um, and it sounds a bit. When I saw it, it sounds a bit, a bit cheesy, but it's got like twelve thousand twelve thousand yeah. ex-military on there, and it, it is literally it is a a century point. Yeah. No, it's an optional. That's what it is. Yeah. Drama. We got a drama in. We got a drama in Plymouth. We got a drama here. This, that, and the other. Yeah. It goes on there, and mate. You've got masses of people on the ground yeah. going around. I can help. I can give you this. I can yeah. get that. I can get this. Yeah. That distribution information. It, it was formed for the mental health side of things, but it helps with all mm. sorts from mm. jobs. To so there's a few of those networks at the moment, and they they are seriously helpful. One of the things I've you know when I came into this and I wanted to really take on veterans care, there is some really good care around. The trouble is accessing it. The trouble is um, the points of uh, yeah the points of access, understanding it's there. We're also regulating it. it too. Say again. Being accepting of Being it. Being accepting well. of it is, is a big part. I think we're getting slightly better at that. Um, but one yeah. of the key challenges as well is is around you know regulating it in a way and making sure that actually people are adhering to sort of really basic standards in there. So for example, practicing evidence based care or having a common needs assessment so that actually if you go from help for heroes to combat stress, you're not going to have to tell your story again. There is a common needs assessment for a veterans going into the veterans care. Um, stream if you like standardizing it standardizing from the start it. yeah right. and having a common entrance point stuff like that i mean i've tried to do that for two or three years now i've abjectly failed because we've run into brexit and nobody's got any time for it in westminster but you know we will get out the other side of brexit and we will reform veterans care in this country um along those lines it's going the right way i think it's, it's I getting mean, there i mean there are some some good practices now um you know you've got uh Veterans Gateway and so on, but it's about bringing it all together. There is, yeah. you know, there are pockets of exceptional care, and the key is to get that best practice across the system so everyone works as a team, and actually refocuses around the individual who is trying to access this care. Now, if I if I had problems, now I would struggle to know where to go for veterans care. If a, a private two three years out of the army working in a call centre in Cardiff hits problems now. How on earth is he going to know where to go if I can't figure it out as a member of parliament? So, you know, we, we have a long way to go. Um, progress is too slow, but at least we've seen some. My, my experience of, of, it, of it is was um, when I was in that, under that umbrella, I was in the chain, if you like, from going and saying, give me some help, please. Mm. Um, and not knowing what the help was that I needed. Just, you know, I just looked fucking, this is me. I need squaring away. Yeah. Hold my hand. Yeah. Um, I Where did you get help for heroes, you said, yeah? Shabbat House, Collie, yeah. Cool. yeah. Um, uh, cause my mate had a very good experience there. He'd been in there for mm. a, a while. Injury. But then when I was in, it, it, I became involved with several organisations, not just Help for Heroes, Help for Heroes, British Legion, NHS, Walking with the Wounded. Mm. And a civvy therapist. Yeah, it was very, very disjointed. I right. didn't. I, See, there was, no, I mean. was no primary. So this is the problem. I want to find out. Um, have you, is your internet working? By the way. Yeah. I want to. This guy's name is really. I'm not going to look through your photos. I haven't got a fetish for um, really ugly ginger people. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'll let that one slide. That one slide because you're an MP. 
thought, yeah, I thought you were looking for. Because I'm looking for Dan's surname because I don't want to forget his name. You, you better dress than I expected. I was expecting what like expecting? Uh, like um, beige trousers, uh, maroon maroon leather uh, shoes. You know the typical. But you, you, you crap. Uh, you know the sort of officer you had to put up with in the parachute regiment is very different <laughs> to commando joint yeah. bars officer. I'm afraid. Um, Yeah. Where were you based when you left? What geographic? Uh, Plymouth. So Plymouth's oh. been my home. I mean, Are that's you where I'm Plymouth? the MP for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just as soon as I got elected, but I've lived just outside Plymouth now. Yeah. Um, people are pretty silly about politics. I didn't want my kids going to a school. Oh, really? Um, where parents will harass them on the gates. You're joking? Like, no, honestly, what? I can't tell you the amount of vitriol you get in this job. I'm very lucky because I. Oh. Generally, um, yeah, Dan Collins, that's right. Dan Collins. Class Sergeant Dan Collins. You've got right. to read about his story, mate. Ah, um, he wrote yeah. the book. He wrote the book, didn't he? He, no, wrote he didn't, book. He didn't yeah. write a book, mate. Yeah, he did, did he? No, he didn't. He before, before he died, yeah, he did. He flipped and dead. Sure did he? Did. Yeah, I'm sure he did. Dan he Collins. He, he, wrote, he was a sniper. Yeah, he was in a book. I don't know if he wrote one. I am pretty sure... Well, if he did sure. read one, send me a link to it later. I'd like to read yeah, it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But, I mean, watch his video that he sends to his mum and think, what does it take for an individual to get there? And I tell you what, you, your reserve um, will be topped up to continue this fight. I Look, I, I, I'm here today, right? Um, I, 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 I know how it feels to be at the, like, the depths Hmm. I did walk myself in to help the heroes because I was feeling great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was it was a product of for the the third time over a period of months that that uh, an option of a way out popped into my mm. head that should not yeah. be popping into my head. Yeah. Um. And I'm a logical. Were you struggling with PTSD or? I, I'm undiagnosed. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. It was a mental mental health yeah. issue. Yeah. You know. Uh, what did you do? CBT or anything like that? Cognitive behavioural therapy? Yes. What sort of treatment did you do? I uh, was with a therapist. Are you on meds and things like no, that? No, 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 okay. no, no. I'm a big believer in lifestyle changes as well. As it was, okay. a, it was a, yeah. it's a holistic thing, isn't it? Mental yeah, yeah. You got to so you did a course attitude. of CBT, did you, with help for heroes? Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, walking with the wounded and through that. To be okay, but great. I didn't, I didn't, go, I didn't go, you know, I didn't end up in there because I, I felt great. And that, that, you, you get into a, you get into a rut, um, and it can be exacerbated by alcohol abuse. It can be exacerbated yeah. by poor lifestyle, other stresses going on. You know, I went through a divorce a few years back, um, and I think for this, for this, the strongest, most positively minded who who, who may be a little bit ignorant to, oh, you know, it's not that bad. Like, yeah, I, I was one of the mentally one of the strongest so, people you'd ever meet. I that position I was in, I was. We're useless. Mental health we has got absolutely zero to do with that. You know, this idea that you can tough it out. Right? I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. And I made that mistake for years. It's absolute horseshit. If you actually look into the, you know, if you apply your brain to this stuff rather than your kind of um, um, pre preceptions. Things around mental health and being unable to forget images, being unable to forget thoughts, intrusive thoughts, 
um, obsessive behavior. These are chemical things in your brain, right? That you can, um, yes, uh, reprogram through things like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, take medication for to alter the balances um, of certain chemicals in your brain. It is exactly like physical health. It's like having a broken leg or busting your ankle. And the sooner people understand this, and if they are poorly, get help, the better they will get. And, and the trouble is people leave it so late, right? So your chances of getting better with mental health, if you intervene early, upstream, before you get the concomitant things like alcohol abuse, um, you know, um, uh, substance abuse, debt, whatever it may be, if you get in there early and you get help early, you can fundamentally improve nine times over your chances of success. The problem is people think, oh, I'll just snap out of it. I'll just toughen up, you know, and, and we are getting better, right? Since 2006, seven, I mean, Trim came in, do you remember that in 2008? Yeah. I mean, and it was total tokenism. I mean, like 2009, 10, um, you know, I remember a horrific incident. I was going, this poor guy drowned in, in the canal, Neb Canal, um, it, you know, he went in in a vehicle and we're carrying him onto the, onto the helicopter and he was so heavy, the, the stretcher snapped, right? So I grabbed him like a baby, like that, and I, I put him on. Anyway, came back and he's, he's um, dead. He's dead, yeah. Came back and uh, sat down with the lads, and 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 um, the trim practitioner was a sergeant in the platoon. And he said, uh, I, I told him what happened. I was like, guys, that was horrible. Like literally, this guy's stretcher collapsed, and I just basically cuddled him and chucked him in the back. And he was like, well, I'm the trim practitioner. How do you feel about it? And I was like, yeah, pretty shit. And he goes, okay, you've been trimmed. <laughs> and that was, you know, and we laugh about it, right? But trim for, was a mental health know, thing, wasn't it? It was a yeah, traumatic, trauma uh, risk management, that's okay, it, which has, has actually done some wonderful things with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. But we didn't, I don't think we took it seriously fast enough. Mm. Um, but look, I, th I think uh, that there is always the um, um, chance or the... Uh, there's a, there's a fear around the bow wave of mental health coming out of Afghanistan and and the, and the concomitant problems with that. I think we can beat it, but I uh, the government clearly needs to do more. I think veterans community as a whole, um, you know, uh, needs to regulate itself in a way. One of the problems we've got, okay, is people self-diagnosing, um, and what that means is that friends of mine who are genuinely poorly do not want to diagnose as a PTSD because they think they're joining some bluffers club, mm -hmm. which couldn't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, and we have to regulate that because no one's going to come in from the outside who hasn't been on operations and say, look, mate, I know you feel like your whole world's going, going, you know, going wrong and so on. You may have any number of mental health problems, but it's not PTSD. So let's not mm -hmm. treat it as PTSD because you're not going to get better. Let's treat perhaps your depression or your substance abuse, and then you will feel like you haven't got PTSD. So it's that, it's that kind of enlightened, more intelligent approach to mental health that can have real, you know, real exponential effects on the community. And we can do that ourselves by, you know, not, you know, I get the impression sometimes, anyone who's had PTSD does not want PTSD, right? It is a horrific, um, life-limiting um absolutely poleaxing condition that nobody wants but i have seen some people who want it <laughs> okay mm, mm. we have to regulate that because no no one else is going to in reality yes you will get um psychiatrists and someone who'll sit down and say someone young got ptsd but ultimately they're better off hearing it from another combat veteran 
He goes, look, mate, I, I've, I've done that stuff with you as well. And these thoughts you're getting, it's totally normal. <laughs> to get to get some of these thoughts is normal. Yes, you can't sleep, you're waking up at night or whatever. That, that's a different matter. But actually to have some effect from a traumatic experience is normal. But hey, if we tackle your alcoholism and we tackle your money management, you're going to... F- you know, you, you'll find you don't have PTSD yeah, yeah, and you yeah, can get on with yeah, your life. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's it's a, it's a really good point. Um, is that uh, it doesn't, it, it, there's a stigma attached to PTSD and I know exactly what you're saying about, you know, you know people who want it. Um, but the, the the psychological impact of war, okay, is is a plethora of things, not just PTSD. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I, I'm like, I've got a, like, we're going to have to wrap this up now, but I've got a, I've got a friend who, is having mental health issues, um, but I and it's straight away it's being looked at. Well, it must be PTSD, and I think he thinks in his head, hey, it might be. Why you gut feeling is it's not, and it's and I'm no expert, but it's more there are issues going on. It's more of an attention thing. I don't mean it's in a, in a bad way. Mm-hmm. It's he's got mental health issues. Yeah, yeah. Does it mean he should be paying less attention? No, he's got issues. Yeah. Oh, but again, that awareness of mental health. Men- what did uh, what does Michael Coates call it? Mental fitness. Brilliant term. Mental, Mental fitness. Well, I actually believe in something called, and you speak to people like Mark Omrod from our generation and so on. I actually believe in something called post-traumatic growth, where you can have these things. It, right? Michael mentioned that as well. And yeah, yeah. I've not heard that before. That's certainly what happened to me. I mean, I had a pretty rough time growing up. I had obsessive compulsive disorder as an adolescent, which absolutely laid me low. Um, Afghan straightened me out. Yeah. And and I feel very strongly about this stuff, which is why I feel this rush to get a diagnosis of of ptsd i think we just need to be very very careful about it um not because the reason some people think i want them to be careful is that i'm playing it down or anything ptsd is a horrific condition however if you try and treat something as ptsd and it's not ptsd you will never get better and those who genuinely need that help will not be able to access it because they've been swamped so let's be grown up about this let's you know let's let's have a mature honest discussion and we must do much better around other mental health conditions depression mm-hmm. um ocd um and all sorts of other conditions we must do better so that people know they can access treatment for that i know some people who, who want who say they've got ptsd because they feel they can access the treatments the answer isn't to do down ptsd it's to actually bring these other treatments up so mm-hmm. people can you know this parity of esteem that the government talks about is a reality whether you've got a physical injury or mental injury okay your treatment is exactly the same your chance of getting better are exactly the same we are on a journey to that but it's too slow at the moment and i'll do everything we can to get us get us getting faster good appreciate it sound like the man to do it well um right is there anything you want to mention anything anything at all before we wrap it up nothing at all where are you going to be in two years time (laughs) (laughs) hopefully hopefully not in prison Well, I hope, mate. I hope. I hope wherever you go, it's um, it's, it's uh, a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure in the world. Thank you, John. Nice Cheers, one, buddy. Cheers. That's it. Another shout out to our sponsors today: Westway Nissan. Up to twenty percent off for service personnel and veterans, but also with employment opportunities. Get along to Westway Nissan, the code UK, and have a browse. I got into one of their branches. They've got them all over the UK. Our other sponsor was Argus Europe. Argus Europe run close protection, surveillance, and private investigation courses ten times a year. The people that conduct this training are still operating in the areas they instruct. They're also an operational company, so their knowledge and expertise is wired tight. Check them out at Argus Europe, the code UK. 
or just track Argus Europe into Google and it will point you in the right direction. All done for today. Until the next time, out. <laughs>